Please rise for the reading of God's Word from the Gospel of John, chapter 20, beginning in verse 19. Hear now God's Word. Then the same day at evening, at evening, uh, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. When the disciples were, uh, then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see his hands, in his hands, the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, uh, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here, and look at my hands, and reach your hand there, and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are all the, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said, You may be seated. Well, the spirit of Easter continues today. Every Sunday is really Easter Sunday because every Sunday we celebrate the resurrection of the Lord uh, because, because the message of that means that we have been freed from the power of sin and death and raised to walk in newness of life. That's how we begin every week. But indeed, in the midst of the powerful Easter story, when the mightiest act of God is occurring, when Jesus has just been raised from the dead by the power of God, there is also doubt. It's completely understandable, but still, there's doubt. Perhaps you too have had a few doubts of your own. You see, everyone doubts. Even those with faith in God struggle with doubt on occasion and perhaps say with the man in Mark chapter 9, verse 24, I do believe, but help my unbelief. Charles Spurgeon in his sermon, Desire of the Soul in Spiritual Darkness, observed, he said, I think when a man says, I never doubt It is quite time for us to doubt him. It is quite time for us to begin to say, Ah, poor soul, I'm afraid you are not on the road at all 
For if you were, you would see so many things in yourself and so much glory in Christ more than you deserve that you would be so much ashamed of yourself as even to say, this is too good to be true. A working definition of doubt is to lack confidence, to consider something as unlikely. The very first expression of doubt in the Bible is found in Genesis chapter 3 when Satan tempted Eve. God had given a clear command regarding the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, and had specified the consequences of that disobedience. Satan introduced doubt into Eve's mind when he said, Did God actually say that? You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did he say that? He wanted her to lack confidence in God's word, in God's command. And so when she affirmed God's command, including the consequences, Satan replied with denial, which is a stronger statement of doubt, when he said, you surely will not die. Doubt is a tool of Satan to make us lack confidence in God's word and consider his judgment unlikely. We have several other examples of doubt recorded in the Bible. Actually, we have a lot of them. I'm just going to cite two or three as an example. Um, For example, we know the story of Mary Magdalene and how she came to the tomb early on that first Easter morning. As the morning darkness was beginning to give way to the morning light, she was told by an angel that Jesus wasn't there. And suddenly, suddenly, miraculously, the risen Jesus spoke to her, uh, saying her name, Mary. And she turned, and Jesus was standing there. Now, can you imagine that? I want you to. Someone that you buried just a few, a couple of days ago, somebody you saw executed, standing there, talking to you. They spoke a few words, and then Mary ran to tell the disciples what she had seen and what was the initial reaction of the disciples. With this first report of Jesus' resurrection, there was doubt lingering in the disciples' minds, just like there will be in Thomas's mind when we get to him. A second example comes later that night when the disciples are huddled together in their upper room and suddenly Jesus appears to them. The doors were shut, the windows were closed, and the disciples were frightened. They were hiding. And what was their reaction to Jesus when he suddenly appears to them? Did they fall down on their knees in adoration and praise? Did they say, hey, it's just like we expected we knew he would come back. No, the first disciples were startled at first and thought they were seeing a ghost, some kind of a hallucination. And Jesus asked them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? So you see, in the shadows of the Easter message, there is doubt. 
A third example is seen in the story of what we've call, come to call Doubting Thomas. Poor Thomas is stuck forever with that unfortunate moniker. He wasn't there in the upper room with the other disciples that night. You know, perhaps you've been in one of those situations where someone said to you the next day after some big event, you should have been there last night. It was incredible. Um, you should have been here last night, Thomas. You missed it. Jesus came back. He is not dead. He's alive. And what was Thomas's reaction? He said, unless I see his hands in his hands the print of the nails and I put my fingers into the print of those nails and put my hand into his side, I won't believe it. So he didn't go along with the crowd. The fourth story is one more example of doubting being at the core of the Easter story. We come to it, uh, to the very last resurrection appearance of Jesus when he was on the Mount of Ascension, right before he ascends into heaven. He was ready to leave earth to ascend to glory, and Jesus was about to commission his disciples to go into all the world and make disciples of all the people. This is right before the Great Commission, and this was their last time together. And the Gospel of Matthew says this in chapter 28, 16, and 17. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And so the Gospel of Matthew ends on that note of doubt. On the one hand, we experience the most dramatic and powerful event in human history when God raises Jesus from the dead. And within that same amazing story, we see doubt lurking in the shadows. So let's back up and take a little closer look at Doubting Thomas. With this story of Thomas and also with chapter 20 as a whole, what John set out to tell us in his gospel from those unforgettable opening lines, has been completed. So the story has taken a little time. It's taken some twists and turns. It's had some ups and downs. But in the Gospel of John, we meet many interesting characters, and we watch them interact with Jesus. Some have misunderstood him. Some have been downright hostile. And some, often to their own surprise, have come to believe him. We now have another such character to add to John's vivid collection of portraits. Thomas brings the book around to where we started. This is pretty interesting to me. He does it with this breathtaking statement of newfound faith when he says, My Lord and my God. He's the very first person in this book to look at Jesus and address the word God directly to him. This is what John has been working toward from the beginning. You remember how the Gospel of John opens? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Nobody has ever seen God. The only begotten God, uh, who is intimately close to the Father, has brought Him to light. Jesus had previously told Thomas, 
in John 14, He who has seen me has seen the Father. What does that mean? What does it look like when it's actually happening? Well, John says it looks like this, and he describes Jesus going through Galilee and Jerusalem back and forth with moments of glory and uncertainty woven together until they meet on the cross. Now, a week after Easter, it looks like this. A frightened and skeptical disciple who's determined not to believe anything until he has solid evidence is confronted by Jesus who has just walked, as he previously did, through a locked door. This baffled Thomas, uh, just, uh, it baffled Thomas just as it would us. What sort of person, what sort of an object are we dealing with here? The whole point of the story is that this is the same Jesus, the marks of the nails in his hands, the wound in his side big enough to get your hand into. This is not a ghost, nor is it someone pretending to be Jesus. It's really him. He has not only escaped death, the grave, the clothes, the spices. He comes and goes as though he belongs both in our world and in some different world. One which intersects with ours at various points. Thomas acts as we would expect, right? This disciple who earlier said, let us also go that we may die with him. Who complained that Jesus had not made things clear enough in John 14. Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? He just happened to be the one that was somewhere else that night that Jesus appeared the first time in the upper room on Easter Day. He sees the others excited, elated, unable to contain their joy. But he's not going to be taken in that easily. At the end, Jesus issues a gentle rebuke to Thomas for needing to see or touch before he would believe. And I want you to note this, that I've heard this more than once, particularly in the university. Thomas is often cited as having been rebuked harshly by Jesus for just wanting to follow the science. Thomas was rebuked by Jesus for wanting evidence. You Christians have been told just to believe. Just take it, take it on blind faith. You don't need any evidence at all. All you need is faith. But we over here, we are much more rational than you. We take everything. We only believe the evidence. And we don't have time to develop this, but I'll just say that's not true. It takes a whole bunch of faith to believe what they believe it takes a lot more, I would argue. It takes faith, but it also takes evidence, and God provides both. And so he sees, again, the others excited. At the end, Jesus issues a gentle rebuke. Of course, Thomas, like the other disciples, was doubting. But you have to remember, he had already seen a great deal. He had seen Jesus heal the sick. He had seen Jesus walk on water. 
He had seen him turn perhaps, I don't know if he was there for water into wine, but he had seen many, many miracles, the feeding of the 5,000. He'd seen Lazarus raised from the dead in John chapter 11. It was not a lack of evidence. And so while Jesus tells Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it in my side... Now, I don't know um, I don't know if that's a command or just a statement Jesus is making, and John doesn't tell us actually whether Thomas followed through and actually put his finger in his hand or his side, because John is very anxious to get to the main point. We don't know if Thomas got that far. He might have touched. He might not have. But the next verse simply says that Thomas answered Jesus and said to him, my Lord and my God. This isn't so much a harsh rebuke, rather a gentle one. It is more of an encouragement to those who come later, to people who's of subsequent generations, to people like us. We are all blessed when without having seen the risen Lord for ourselves, we nevertheless believe in him. If the Word who was God has now made the visible God visible, the invisible God visible, so as in the prologue of John's Gospel, this chapter has described how He has brought life and light into a dark world. The resurrection isn't an alien power breaking into God's world. It's what happens when the Creator Himself comes to heal and restore His world and bring it to its appointed gold. The resurrection is not only new, it is a new creation. To grasp this is vital for the health of the Christian faith. Any sense that Jesus starts a movement which is somehow opposed to or can leave behind the world that we live in, this physical world that God made in the first place, that is excluded by this gospel from start to finish. Now, we can all relate to Thomas. Thomas has a certain appeal to most of us because he seems at least to be an honest person. He didn't believe just to go along with the group. He wasn't the kind of person who blindly accepted things without question we find two moments in the Gospels where we meet Thomas, and on both occasions, he was asking questions. For example, as I noted earlier, one time Jesus was teaching about going to prepare a place for them, a heavenly mansion, and it was Thomas who asked Jesus, we don't know where you're going, and we don't know the way. Thomas didn't understand what Jesus was saying, and so he asked Jesus questions. And the second story about Thomas is the gospel story for today when ten disciples expressed wonder and amazement that the resurrected Christ had revealed himself to them. But Thomas didn't go along with the crowd and say, okay, it must be true since you said so, or since y'all said so. That's the southern translation. Instead, Thomas expressed his reservation and doubt. He wasn't the kind of person who would have recited the creed without asking the question and saying, 
uh, of what it, uh, without thinking of what he was saying when he said, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. Thomas wants to know why. Like Thomas, we often have doubts and express those doubts and questions. We have questions about God, about Jesus, about the Bible, and about the Christian faith. Is there no validity to other world religions? How do we know the Bible is true? Why is there so much evil in the world? Or we often have personal questions such as, why did I get sick? Why did this person die? Why am I and my family having all these troubles? So we are like Thomas. We also have questions. We're like Thomas in another way. We also would like some proofs and some signs. We're like that person in the rock opera, Jesus Christ Superstar, who sang, Jesus Christ, if you're divine, turn my water into wine. Prove to me that you're no fool. Walk across my swimming pool. We would like God to work some miracles in our personal lives so we could more easily believe. Most Christians sometimes during our lives have doubts. We have questions. That's the way God wired us. During our lifetimes, we'll have many questions for God, and there are many times in our lives when we will ask more questions than others. In his book, In Two Minds, The Dilemma of Doubt and How to Resolve It, theologian Oz Guinness wrote this, If ours is an examined faith, we should be unafraid to doubt. If doubt is eventually justified, we were believing what clearly was not worth believing. But if doubt is answered, our faith has grown stronger. It knows God more certainly and can enjoy God more deeply. In other words, it's a good thing to ask questions. But don't stop with just asking questions and just throwing them out there and walking away. Seek the answers. There's a lot out there. There's a lot to know. In other words, no matter how strong our faith is, at some point we experience doubt, but instead of being a sign of weakness, doubt can actually be something that causes us to dig deeper in our relationship with God and can even make our faith stronger. You know, again, it's interesting. I was talking with somebody the other day about some other doctrine. I said, you know, like the doctrine of predestination. There's only about eight questions that come up from that. Everybody has the same questions. You think nobody's ever thought about that? Nobody's ever written anything about that or had something to say? How do you explain this? Well, don't walk away after you ask that question. Keep looking. Read a book. Talk to somebody. Say, how did you answer that question? Surely you had the same question. Even unbelievers, that's the thing to remember. We always say, well, there's believers and unbelievers. I guess... Are we the only ones with doubts? Do you think unbelievers ever have doubts about their unbelief? About what they think's going on in this world and why they're here and where it's going and how it got here? You think they've got all the answers? You think they think they have all the answers? I think it was the philosopher Camus who said, Every time I thought I got rid of God, I heard a creak on the staircase. 
C.S. Lewis, who was an atheist before he was a Christian, wrote this. Just as the Christian has his moments when the clamor of this visible and audible world is so persistent and the whisper of the spiritual world so faint that faith and reason can hardly stick to their guns, so as I well remember, the atheist also has his moments of shuddering misgiving, of an all but irresistible suspicion that old tales may, after all, be true, and that something or someone from outside may at any moment break into his neat, explicable, mechanical universe. Believe in God, and you will have to face hours when it seems obvious that this material world is the only reality. Disbelieve in him, and you must face hours when this material world seems to shout at you that it is not at all. No conviction, religious or irreligious, will of itself end once and for all this fifth columnist in the soul. Only the practice of faith resulting in the habit of faith will gradually do that. So, let me suggest some things that might be helpful about doubting. First, consider that there is a distinction, then, between a doubter and an unbeliever. A doubter is a person who seeks for God and the godly life. An unbeliever isn't searching for God at all, but is looking for reasons not to believe. A doubter is a person who has a thousand questions for God. An unbeliever is apathetic or hostile toward God. Second, doubts and questions often lead to a deeper faith. Some people have a thousand and one questions about God, Jesus, the Bible, and every aspect of the Christian faith. But those questions and doubts can lead to a deeper understanding. Centuries ago, Copernicus doubted that the earth was the center of the universe and his doubt led him to a larger and deeper understanding of the Christian faith. And thus we had the Copernican Revolution. A whole new view, a whole new understanding. Thomas was skeptical of the news he heard about the resurrected Christ, and he voiced his doubts. Nevertheless, at the close of the story, Thomas truly believed. Third, Jesus says, Thomas, stop doubting and believe. There is a time in all of our lives where God says to us, it's time to stop your doubting and start your believing. In the book of Job, Job went on doubting, complaining and questioning God. And finally, God says this to Job. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you, and you will answer me. Many of you have deep faith and have grown past most of your doubts and questions. There is a great power in a life that believes in and walks with Christ. I think this explains the radical change that actually took place in the lives of the disciples who were trembling and frightened, but suddenly we see them bold. Thomas, after all that questioning and doubting, it came to a time 
when he fell on his knees and he said, My Lord and my God. Francis Schaeffer wrote this, Because Thomas insisted on seeing and touching Jesus in his resurrected body, we have been given in the Gospels an even clearer evidence of the resurrection than we otherwise would have had. But Jesus is saying that Thomas should have believed without this additional evidence because the evidence available to Thomas before was in itself sufficient. In other words, before Thomas saw and heard Jesus in this way, he was in the same position as we are today. Both he at that time and we today have the same sufficient witness of those who have seen and heard and who have had the opportunity to touch the resurrected Christ. In fact, in the light of this sufficient and sure witness, we, like Thomas, are disobedient if we do not bow. We are without excuse. A couple of more extended quotes from the famous and great apologist J. Gresham Machen from the uh, early 20th century. Sometimes, he said, when I have tried, very imperfectly, I confess, to present arguments in defense of the resurrection of our Lord or of the truth at this point or that of God's word, someone has come up to me after the lecture and said to me very kindly, we liked it and we are impressed with the considerations that you have adduced in defense of the faith. But the trouble is, we all believe in the Bible already and the persons that really needed the lecture are not here. When someone tells me that, I'm not very greatly disturbed. True, I should have liked to have had just as many skeptics as possible at my lecture, but if they are not there, I do not necessarily think that my efforts were all in vain. What I am trying to do by my apologetic, my defense of the faith, is not merely, perhaps not even primarily, to convince people who are opposed to the Christian religion. Rather, I am trying to give to Christian people, Christian parents, or Sunday school teachers, materials that they can use, not in dealing with avowed skeptics whose backs are up against Christianity, but in dealing with their own children or with the pupils in their classes who love them and who long to be Christians as they are, but are troubled by the hostile voices on all sides. But because argument is insufficient, it does not follow that it's unnecessary. What the Holy Spirit does in the new birth is not to make a man a Christian regardless of the evidence, but on the contrary, to clear away the mist from his eyes and enable him to attend to the evidence. Finally, I want to point out and ask the question, but shouldn't you have assurance? Of course you should. 1 John 5.13, these things, John says, I've written to you that believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. This is why God offers to give you assurance by various means. The gospel preached, the gospel enacted, the gospel embodied in the fellowship of the saints, these are all ways that God gives us assurance. J.C. Ryle wrote, Now assurance goes far to set a child of God free. 
It enables him to feel that the great business of life is a settled business. The great debt, a paid debt. The great disease, a healed disease. And the great work, a finished work. And all other business, diseases, debts, and works are then by comparison small. In this way, assurance makes him patient in tribulation, calm under bereavements, unmoved in sorrow, not afraid of evil things, in every condition content. For it gives him a fixedness of heart. It sweetens his bitter cups. It lessens the burdens of his crosses. It smooths the rough places over which he travels. And it lightens the valley of the shadow of death. It makes him feel that he always has something solid beneath his feet and something firm in his hand, a sure friend by, by the way, and a sure home in the end. And I know I'm quoting a lot, but others have just said it way better than I can. So um, uh, sometimes as a pastor, I think my job is to go out and shop at the feed store and bring home um, the good stuff. And share it with you. So I'm going to close with one more long quote here from J. Gresham Machen again. Machen was a great defender of the faith uh, at Princeton uh, Theological Seminary and then later helped start the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and Westminster Seminary and a great defender of the faith uh, and scholar of the New Testament. He said another thing, he, he's talking about when he had doubts as a child. He said, another thing used to be said to me by my mother in those dark hours when the lamp burned dim, when I thought that faith was gone and shipwreck had been made of my soul. Christ, she used to say, keeps firmer hold on us than we keep on him. That means, at least when translated into worldly terms, that we ought to distrust our moods. Many a man has fallen into despair because losing the heavenly vision for a moment, passing through the dull lowlands of life, he takes such experience as though it were permanent and deserts a well-grounded conviction which was the real foundation of his life. Faith is often diversified by doubt, but a man should not desert the conviction of his better moments because the dark moments come. But my mother's word meant something far deeper than all that. It meant, rather, that salvation by faith does not mean that we are saved because we keep ourselves at every moment in an ideally perfect attitude of confidence in Christ. No, we are saved because having once been united to Christ by faith, we are his forever. Calvinism is a very comforting doctrine indeed, he said. Without its comfort, I think I should have perished long ago in the castle of giant despair. Let's pray. Strengthen our faith, O Lord, and keep us from falling into doubt. We haven't seen you in the flesh as Thomas did, but you have sent the same Holy Spirit to bring knowledge of the truth conviction of sin and trust in Christ. 
Your word is the inspired, authoritative account of your great works. Give us a faith that's strong and that's always growing stronger. Give us the ability to confidently share the gospel with others. May we devote ourselves continually to your word and to the apostolic message which centers in the person and work of Christ. May this message so absorb us that it will be our greatest interest and delight to tell the story of Jesus and his love so that multitudes might believe and have life in his name. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. The last two verses of this text that we read today is John 20, uh, verses 30 and 31. So after the story of Jesus appearing to his disciples, including Thomas, it says, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, you may have life in his name. So John concludes this chapter by inserting that out of the great mass of material that he could have selected, he has chosen these signs so that we, his readers, may come to have faith for ourselves. There is no shortage of evidence for the triune God of Scripture. It's all around us. I'm just going to mention four of them. In creation... Romans 1, 19-20, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, that being people, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Everywhere you look, the heavens declare the glory of God. And his handiwork. And I don't care what they say. When I hear people talk about this all just evolving from nothing, from an explosion, enough time and chance, you talk about faith. Nobody saw that happen. Nobody sees this evolution happening. And when they talk about it, they talk about it as though it's progress. Though it has meaning. Though it's going somewhere, we don't know where or why or who's directing it, that there's no intelligence involved, it just is. And we can see that, and that's our alternative explanation to a creator. Those are the choices. You tell me which takes more faith. Second, there's us. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We are made in the image of God. I can't escape that and neither can you. It's always with you. It's always screaming out. Here's the evidence. Look at yourself. You really think this is it? That every single thing you do every day, every love you have, every person and every relationship you have, very, very soon is going to end and it will have meant how much? Nothing. Less than nothing. 
you will be dissolved back into the universe of meaninglessness. That's the alternative, right? Can somebody come up with another one? Third, in Christ, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. That's an incredible claim. And it's either true or false. Jesus is either everything. He is either God, the Creator, the Eternal One, the Risen One. He is either that or none of this means anything. Those are the two alternatives. It's an all or nothing proposition. And of course, we have the scriptures. Abraham, you remember in the story of the rich man and Lazarus and the rich man who was in Hades, who was suffering, cried out to Abraham and said, please send somebody from the dead to tell my brothers, to warn my brothers not to come here. And Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. They have the Old Testament. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. And But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded by someone who rose from the dead. That's because the heart is dead. It's in desperate need of resurrection itself. So I suggest to you, You have many reasons to believe. Let us come to the Lord's table and celebrate his death and his resurrection. Oh God, indeed, we are surprised by the resurrection. What a happy surprise. Israel rejoiced when Egypt died upon the shore. We have a far greater joy because our Redeemer's foe lays crushed in the dust. Lord Jesus You stride forth as the victor, conqueror of death, hell, and all opposition. You broke the bands of death, trample the powers of darkness down, and live forever. You are our gracious surety, who was apprehended for payment of our debt. You came forth from the prison house of the grave, free and triumphant over sin, Satan, and death. Where is the proof of that vicarious offer, that that vicarious offering was accepted, that the claims of justice were satisfied, that Satan's head has been crushed? He lives. He lives. We have our assurance that in Christ we too died. In Him we also live. In His victory we triumph. In His ascension we shall be glorified. Bless now our Easter feast as you have lavished us with your favor. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work uh, to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight, Through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.